everybody, it's Ian King from King Sports International. Today we have on our call as our guest to chat to Andre Benoit from Canada. So Andre, I'm taking you off mute my end and you just need to make sure, yeah, good, you're off mute now. How's it going, Andre? It's going great. Finally, I get interviewed by the great Ian King. It's, all, it's uh, awesome. Finally, get to interview the great Andre Benoit. So yeah. I am at a motocross track, I'll just tell you that now. So you're gonna hear background noise, but we're training today, we're in a training session. Okay. Um, and we just, we just work where we can, and sometimes it's on a snow field, and sometimes it's in a pool, and sometimes it's, it's on a motor, 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 uh, motor track. So a bit of background okay. noise. I've got a few on the line that join us. I appreciate um, those who joined us as well. So you're, you're off mute, so manage the self-mute button yourself. And if you have a question, just the electronic hand. And if, if I don't see you, just interrupt me um, and come off mute yourself. So they know how, how I operate. It's full on them. Um, so Andre, let's go back to the very beginning. So um, start off where you were born, where you went to school. Okay, uh, when I was born in uh, a small town called Saint-Foy, Quebec, it's from the, just beside the city of Quebec, in the province of Quebec in Canada, and I was uh, born 1962, um, at 11 something at night, I don't know. And then anyway, I went to school, uh, you, how far you want me to go back, like elementary school or just university? <laughs> Well, I'm happy to uh, give yeah. Well, I went, I mean, to the normal French Canadian school system, and then uh, I graduated from high school in 1980. Uh, and uh, I took a year off. Uh, I, um, and well, actually, I'm lying. I, t I went from uh, high school, I went from uh, college because in Quebec, there's they have to make things more complicated than anywhere else in Canada, so we have to have two to four years of college, so it's a funnel, and then they just get rid of all the people that don't want to put the time into studying, and then you go to university. So I did two years at, at the college in, uh, on the south shore of Montreal. After that, I took, that was, I graduated in 1982, and uh, in 19, the summer of 82, after I graduated, I uh, decided to uh, cycle across Canada, so I took a, we, me and four other friends, we took a, a plane, some from Montreal. So if you don't know where that is, if you're uh, in the, it's like being, uh, Montreal is just above New York. So I took a plane, I flew to uh, Vancouver, which is above LA in Canada. And uh, we cycled all the way back to Montreal, which is 4,000 and some hundred kilometers. It took us 49 days, so we left on the 26th of June, came home on the 11th of August, and then uh, that was probably the best trip of my life. Uh, that's where I learned that uh, mind over matter does matter. <laughs> um, and then um, it probably gave me the, 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 the will, the tenacity to help me in, in my luge career. So. After 84, I started university in uh, my kinesiology degree, or what they used to call then a phys ed degree. I started in 84 in uh, Sherbrooke, Quebec, and then I also started losing in 1984. Uh, sorry, I started my university in 83, sorry. And then um, 84, I started losing. Uh, I was doing my degree in phys ed, like I said, and then uh, in 84, I started, uh, uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to uh, different things, but I did my university at the University of Sherbrooke, and I finished it in uh, Calgary. So uh, do you want me to go on with the luge thing? or? Yes, yeah, so yeah. let's, let's go through your luge career or your whole sporting career if you want. Okay, well, then um, I did sport all my life. So the, my two basic sports that I I basically give all credit for is gymnastics and well mostly judo and then gymnastics so I did judo for about uh, seven eight years when I was young I started I was nine years old and then uh, gymnastic I was more like about around 10 years 10 11 years old uh, all the way to end of the of high school <clears throat> and those two sports gave me the best base for um, all my other sports that I did. So I did everything from archery to fencing to shooting to uh, uh, cycling, soccer, uh, not always organized sports, but I've done uh, almost uh, tons and tons of sport when I was younger. And then, uh, like I said, 1984, 
I made the national luge team by not by I don't want to say by fluke, but um, a friend of mine told me that there was a commercial on TV in the summer uh, during the Olympics in Sarajevo. I was home, and uh, the commercial basically said that if you're interested in any sports, to call Sports Canada, and they give us all the information to join the sport if, if it's possible. So long story short, I, in the month of May, I called uh, Sports Canada. I said, I'd like to do luge. And I was gonna, I thought they were going to say, well, we don't do luge in Canada. But to my surprise, they said, yeah, uh, you can go to the, um, there's a club in Sherbrooke, Quebec, called uh, the Otters, in French, Les Loutres du Québec, the Otters of Quebec. And then uh, I started luging on wheels in the month of uh, June. So they have a luge, and then they put wheels on it, and you slide down the hill. And from there, they uh, I was able, I was okay driving stuff, driving the sled. And uh, they said, well, we'll invite you to the provincial camp in July. And then from the July, from the provincial camp, they said, well, you're doing pretty good. You're physically in good shape. Uh, we'd like you to come to the national camp. So I went to the national camp in uh, August. And then October... I made the national team, the pool team for the national team. And then 1984, my first run ever on ice was in Innsbruck, Austria. And after my first run, I can I do bad words here on, in this podcast? Okay. I just don't want to censor too many things because I said in French, but I said it in my head. I said, what the fuck am I doing here? After my first run, I said, <laughs> what am I doing? I hate speed. And I was hitting the walls everywhere. And that's from halfway down the track, not the top of the track, halfway <laughs> down the track. I was crashing everywhere, out of control. And I, I remember, vividly remember, there was no uh, radio then. We were poor. So we, were, we, had to, we had a tape recorder at the bottom. And we had to record our, our whatever feedback from our run. And uh, the guy in front of me was ecstatic. I love this. I love, and I'm all I'm thinking is, I hate this shit. Like I gotta, I, I want to go home, but I'm in Innsbruck, so I could not remember my run at all. So I fabricated my feedback because I all I remember is hitting everywhere, uh, which is basically what I said because I'm sure they saw me hitting everywhere. And then. Um, after that, there was just a series of, uh, this, it's a lot of stories, but basically uh, to make, again, a long story short on people crashing and hurting themselves. And me, I was lucky. I didn't hurt myself too bad. Um, but I, um, I remember just before Christmas of 84, I was sent home because I broke a toe at uh, Fort Metatarsal. And um, I was at home and I said, okay, my purpose now is just to conquer my fear. Uh, and then uh, once I conquer my fear, I'm stopping this stupid sport because I'm going to die doing this sport. <laughs> and uh, so I conquered my fear and then I, I stayed in because then once I was able to conquer that and understand why I was so scared and how I could change my sled so I wouldn't crash everywhere, I stayed in. And um, yeah, that was the beginning of my Olympic adventure. That's a, I can keep going. It will probably take a while, but I don't want to. And then I made, uh, I was paired up with a, a doubles partner and I made the Olympics in 1988 in Calgary. And then again in 1992 in Calgary. And then uh, after that, 1993, I became a coach. So, but the Olympic adventure is, uh, the one thing that's important about, if anything about my Olympic adventure is uh, when I used to teach a long time ago with uh, another uh, company, I was, um, I, I never said to people that I was in the Olympics. And at the time, I was teaching with Owen Lacey and John Connor. And they would get so mad at me because I wouldn't say it. And one time, one night, we're having supper. And they said, why don't you talk about your, your Olympics? You're an Olympian. Mm-hmm. I said, and I, I really had to sit down and think about this. I'm like, why don't I talk about this? And at the end of the day, what happened is that the Olympics never defined me. But the fact that I conquered my fear... That defined me. So if you take my two Olympics game out of me, I'm still the same person. But if you take away the the challenges, especially that time where I conquered my fear, uh, and all the challenges after that of uh, of the luge world, and you know, because if you screw up in luge, 
consequences of screwing up is up, you know, you can die or be paralyzed. Um, so uh, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, um, how can I say, uh, inner talk and uh, convincing yourself you're okay and everything is good and so on. So that, those struggles made me, but not the Olympics. And I think that's why now I, I talk about my Olympics, as you can see, but uh, that's why before I never really, uh, it was never something that I thought was really important. So I can't, maybe, I dig, maybe I digress in a different subject here. I'm sorry, but uh, this, oh, no. uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's a great insight because I, I deal with a lot of Olympic, um, former Olympians and sometimes it defines them too much, as you know. So yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> Yeah. There's a lot of fear in Innsbruck and a lot of different slopey services. You know that? Yeah. It's a steep place. The, pardon me? It's a steep place. Well, at the time, it was the second fastest track in the world. And uh, the labyrinth at the bottom is was unforgivable. If you screw it up, you, you pay the price. You're on your face or hitting a wall or something. And curve, curve 10 there was just a, a trap for... A, if you because they, they build it so so high that if you screw up before curve 10 you would go straight up and actually literally lose lose gravity or lose your centrifugal force against the track and then you just fall it's just a free fall so you could uh, that track at the time was a bit of a scary track like uh yeah so you had to be on the ball can imagine so, now yeah. let's talk about uh, how you got into training uh, physical preparation well, that's also connected to Luge. So in 1984, I uh, made the Luge team. Uh, so I say this in a good way in the sense that we trained the wrong way from 84 to 88. So 84, we were all over the place. We didn't know. They didn't. We, our um, strength coach were uh, long-distance runners. So just so in Luge, for those who don't know what's going on, but you start sitting down. You pull on the on the handles, you paddles with your fingers, and you lay down on your back. So there's we don't run, nothing. So some of the testing we had to do with those coaches was um, we had Olympic lifts, which was good. We had um, pull-ups, bench press, or dips at the time. Sorry, dips. And we had a, on the Saturday we had a 10-mile run, and on a Sunday we had a, no sorry Saturday was a 800-meter sprint. And a 10-mile run on uh, the Sunday. So we had no, they had no clue what they were doing because we don't, I, I agree we, you need an aerobic base in life, but the base was not really uh, that important for, uh, for us in lose because we don't, we just sit up and lay down. And, uh, but their, their basics behind it was that they say, well, it will give you a better resistance to jet lag which didn't at all, <laughs> uh, not one bit. And then, um, but the point is that uh, in 1987, just before the Olympics, I uh, maybe four months before the Olympics, I hurt my back uh, and uh, my shoulder, I had chronic pain in my right shoulder for maybe eight months prior. And so when I hurt my back four months prior to the Olympics, uh, I went to see a doctor. They took x-rays and everything. We were taking really uh, good care then because the 80, 88 Olympics were in Calgary. So they want us to show good. So we got an x-ray. And then all of a sudden, what well, next thing I know, the president is there, the head coach is there, the doctor is there, and they go, you lied to us. I go, what do you mean? You broke your back and never told us. I said, I never broke my back ever. And then, uh, long story short, I'm sitting down and thinking, what the heck are they talking about? And they showed me, and sure enough, my two transverse process were, uh, they were uh, healed, but in the wrong place. And uh, I had a spondylolisthesis, 25%, so it's a level four. And uh, all of a sudden, I, re I, re I remember, I'm like, oh, my God, it's when I fell down the stairs when I was 12 years old. So when I was 12 years old, I was doing stupid stunt in the house. And uh, this one thing I would do is I run from my house, from my room, the back of my room, on the hallway upstairs, skid on the carpet, land on the first step, and just sprint down, which would drive my mom absolutely crazy. And uh, one time I ran too quick, and I went straight off the first step, second step, all the way down to the eighth step. And my uh, basically, I hit my lumbar spine right on the eighth step, my butt not touching the floor 
And uh, so the first time that happened, we went to the hospital. Nothing was wrong. And then two weeks later, I did this exact same stupid stunt, exact same miss, and I landed on my uh, spine again. My mom, being a farm girl, she said, this time we're staying here. Get on the sofa and don't move. So I move. But that's when we should have gone to the hospital because 12 years later, I realized that I broke my back. That's when I broke my two transverse process. And uh, so again, uh, they wanted to fuse my spine, my L4, L5. I said, there's no way we're fusing nothing. It's all, oh, it's going to be after the Olympics. I'm like, we're not fusing nothing. I'm 23 years old. We're not fusing nothing. And then um, did the Olympics. And then in May, we started with a new coach. That guy was named Charles Poliquin, as some people might have known who he was. And uh, he came in, did a quick evaluation of us. And all we hear was, fuck, next, tabarnak. Um, like just whatever. It's always swears and next. But with this little strong, a little um, evaluation, structural balance, he, he called it the CLAT test and um, the bench press. He was able to uh, basically, I told him I'm supposed to get my L4, L5 fuse. He said, nope. He goes, first, we're going to train, then we'll see what happens. And then, uh, long story short, after one month, my pain in my sh right shoulder was uh, gone 100%. And my back was approximately, I would say, 90% after two months. 90% back, uh, almost no pain, very good. And uh, that's when I told myself, okay, so this guy, he knows something because I had surgeon, and they're good surgeon, but you know, if you're a surgeon, you have a scalpel, so you want to open people up. Mm. And uh, I said, okay, so maybe this guy knows this crap. And uh, Obviously, he, he, he and he fixed other people on the, on the team, not just me. And I said, uh, one time he was always behind in his. Uh, I'm, and at that time, I'm studying to be uh, finishing my phys ed degree, and I'm studying studying to be a pilot. And um, he said, uh, I said, well, he's always behind his programs, and I said, you should get a an assistant. And he goes, well, fuck, because nobody wants to be my assistant. He goes, do you want the job? I said, sure. And that was the beginning of my career. Well, that was I, yeah. That was it. <laughs> then I never finished my flying lessons, and I finished my degree, and then took courses and then stuff, and then yeah. So uh, that's how I became a strength coach. Not really something that I planned. I never really, when I was younger, I never said, "Fuck, I'm going to be the best strength coach ever." I thought I was going to be a pilot. So that's how like it started. Absolutely. So you, you were very fortunate. You came through Canada in the 80s when they were spending more money per capita than any other country in the Western world. Exactly. That's Yeah, I was lucky on that sense because that's how we got uh, – I was exposed to different – not just to Charles, but also different um, good and other bad coaches that I was able to uh, be critical about and say, okay, you know what, this is full of crap or this is pretty good. So, But you're right, like the 80s, that's when the – the A days was like, but after 89, we got uh, got a lot cut off from our program, but still at least I was uh, able to uh, benefit for some of it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of uh, importing of intellectual, intellectual yeah. property from, uh, you know, a lot of the Eastern European theorists and coaches were <laughs> attracted to Canada in the early 80s. Yep. Yep. For sure. So it was a great place in the 80s. So. Yeah. After you started, uh, after your career, you started coaching yourself full time. Well, in '89, I started. Uh, I got my first clients from Charles. So he said, uh, I got these uh, the national, the provincial Alberta ski team. He took the contract, but didn't want to train them or write the program. So I, he gave it to me. So I wrote the program, started coaching them, and then '89 um, till. After that, I was always my first clients for the first seven years were just amateur athlete or uh, pro athletes, and I got my first general population seven years in my career, which is the reverse of most people. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I started right away writing programs, and obviously I was supervised by Charles and all of them at the beginning. Um, but then after that, I was. Um, 
uh, you made me read some books. Some of some of them were yours, actually, um, and um, I was able to expand my knowledge. And I was uh, when I finished my career as a luge athlete, nineteen ninety two. 1993, I became the head coach for the Luge team and the strength coach and the manager. So uh, that was good because I was really able to uh, refine and test things on the team because uh, since I was a head coach, I, my position as a strength coach was pretty well established. I didn't have to uh, justify too many things. <laughs> to yeah, the, absolutely. To the head coach. Yeah. But, so, I, I, met, I met Charles in uh, November 88, about six months after you did, and I got to hear all about you. Um, I was actually in uh, Montreal in 89, and probably, um, I'm not sure how we didn't touch base then, but I don't think we, I don't think we did. No, because I was, in, I was in Calgary by then, so I moved to Calgary in 1986. Uh -huh. So uh, that's why I was not in Montreal, and I would go to Montreal just to visit my family. And then I was in Calgary um, in the early, with 1990 or 91 with the the Canadian bobsled team when they were in camp there at the Calgary uh, Olympic Training Centre. Yeah, but I must have seen you then, but never got introduced maybe. I don't know, but I, because I was there in 1990, for sure I was involved somewhere. Uh, we, because we were basically, if you were at Canon Pick Park, uh, which I think you would have been, because that's where the weight room was. Yes, uh, I would have been there, but I, not you. Probably you saw me. Well, you saw me. I was there as an athlete, so I didn't. Um, it's not like and it was my, you know, theoretically my. The starting my second year as a strength as a well strength coach, learning to be a strength coach. So I'm pretty sure I didn't go run to you and say, "Hey, you're Ian King." Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just uh, then I was a bit more reserved, I think, and I knew I did not know nothing. <laughs> That. I, I still don't know nothing, but then mm -hmm. I, I uh, now I know because there's so much to learn. But uh, um, yeah, so that's why I probably was. Uh, but I'm sure if we would go back, if we could have video of something, I'm sure it would have been in the same room at one point. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what has been your main teacher in the last, say, five or ten years? Where, where, where do you get your lessons from these days? Uh, to be very honest, uh, my best teachers in the last few days, I'll, and without being, uh, I'm not sucking up to you at all, but uh, I think I was reintroduced to you. Uh, we, we met each other again uh, in the, the last Swiss Symposium. We met, you and I met, well, we sat down and talked for a long time at the last Swiss Symposium. Not this one, but the one before that. In 2016. Yeah. So then I started reading a lot more. I knew about you and I read about your stuff, but I was reading a lot more about your stuff. And it's uh, it was good to, as a refresher or new things also. And um, uh, besides that, um, there's uh, people that I met at the Swiss Symposium in the hallway. I would, uh, I've learned from them. So Dr. Eric Serrano, I spent, I did some uh, internship with him. Uh, and then some uh, JL, I would read on him, and Dave Tate more on uh, about what he would do and so on. So there's no no person per se, but a lot of little information here and there um, that I like to, um, I know, just read bits and pieces. And uh, like for example, the last Swiss symposium for me is the, what's the most important is uh, the talk in the hallways. Not that I know everything about um, um, uh, ev um, everything, because I know I, since I'm taking this course on um, osteopathy, I know that I don't know much. But it's just I, I just I am more nitpicky with um, um, with what I learn. Like I don't have to read a full book. I just get the specific information I need to go get. I think that's probably the biggest, uh, um, my biggest teachers are that. And books, I like to read old books. There's one that now the name escapes me. I'm trying to find it in my uh, computer right now. But um, it's an old book. I know you know about it because we talked about it in 2016. And uh, I'm going to find it here. 
but um, well, it was good to catch up. In, it was good to catch up in 2016 because we had a few loose ends there. Um, yeah, yeah, it, for it was sure. A, yeah. I was just coming back um, from having fractured six in my vertebra uh, six months before that, so um, I was kind of holding my breath a fair bit at that stage. Um, but you probably didn't realise that. Um, no, I did not know that. Yeah. So. <laughs> No, no, it's all good. I, I, it's my goal to hide things like that. So I was, I was um, not in a good shape and doing it pretty tough. But um, it's slowly coming back from that. Yeah. But it was good to catch up because it, the people who uh, came into the industry, particularly post two thousand, have a very distorted view. Where people who've been around since the eighties, and there aren't too many of them. I got to tell you, there aren't too many of them, Andre. Um, they have a, they have a better understanding of how it's evolved at least in the last forty years. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, and the book I'm talking about is uh, it's called Fitness and Strength Training for All Sport by uh, Jay Hart uh, Hartman and uh, Hartman. Yeah, Hartman. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that that book for me was uh, it's fantastic. It's it's again, it's there's nothing new, mm -hmm. but I've learned some of the origin of what I've learned uh, from uh, everybody, even including Charles. Charles took a lot of stuff I think from that book. Um, and I'm not taking anything from away from Charles. Like uh, it's just like I know he was a great uh, uh, mentor for me. But at, at the same time, this this book explained a lot of the origin of stuff, like where uh, certain concepts are coming from and why. And uh, it's uh, I really like as some of the stuff in the like if you're listener go and buy this book and they they see the images in it, they'll say what the heck? Because some some images are really uh, uh, old, if you want, but the principles are really good in there. And uh, yeah, that, that book, when it was first released, we had to work pretty hard to get that out of um, Eastern Germany. Uh, in the in the original days, obviously, it's got a lot easier since. But in the early yeah. days, it was really hard to get the, the hands on that book. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I, uh, I remember getting a um, a um, English translation of a of a German book. Uh, and it was like almost like a big hush hush because it was almost a contraband stuff. Yes. And it was thought, and yeah, uh, even stuff from uh, Dietmar Schmidtblacker. Uh, those informations are just crazy. Like it's just uh, those are that author. I think is the most. Personally, I never finished a chapter of his books uh, because they're so heavy. You you know who he is, right, Dietmar Schmidtblacker? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think is. Is one of the one of my strongest influences. Is as you said, um, people don't appreciate the influence he's had on the Western world due to the the, the lack of um, publishing, uh, at least under his name. But a lot of his concepts have been published um, very well promoted. Yeah. And the whole yeah. alternating alternating accumulation intensification is straight out of Schmidt Blacker. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's uh, it's uh, those are books that I love to read. But again, I have to digest them slowly because sometimes the key is so. Like it's so scientific, I just gotta put it down, and I I will literally digest stuff for months and months and months, and then go back and then read again. And uh, and you were right when you were saying that um, a lot of stuff I found now is is uh, regurgitation or they they uh, it's something that was written a long time ago, and they they changed uh, some of the wording and stuff just to rewrite again about it, and they. And they say oh, it's a brand. It's a new way of training. It's, it's not much. There's not much new, I think, that we can come up with now uh, in training. Like the principles that were established a long time ago are still uh, solid and they're still true. Absolutely. And I think books yeah. like um, Bumper's book, I think, as a categorization book, it, it was excellent. Uh, it was one of those books where went through it there very thoroughly, and he just organized his thoughts so well. Even even if I um, I adapted and modified some of his approaches, which I did in the periodization areas, but he, I, I give so much credit to the work he did in that original book, more so, not the recent uh, versions of it, but the original book. It's, it's funny you say that because I have the same thing. Like, I, I love his original book. The later one, I'm like, eh. uh, And again, I'm maybe too biased because I'm old, um, but um, I think the original book was more, um, I find it uh, less, I'll, I'll put it less fluffy if you want. I don't know if it's a good expression, but well, I think uh, the people who who maybe assisted shape the recent edition weren't even alive when he wrote the first one. Possibly, I think they've missed a bit of the history. The what? I think some of the people who contributed to reshaping the more recent editions may not have even been alive when he wrote the first one. Oh, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. You're totally right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's why I like when I teach my courses. I always tell people, so if you want to read something new that is good, write a book that was written before 1970. I mean, read a book that was written before 1970. Yes. And they look at me and they go, and and then the one like I was teaching last weekend in Ottawa, and uh, one person says, "Well, why?" And I said that was in a private conversation, but um, yeah, I said because it's it's un un untainted like it's just done this is what it is this is what it does this is it boom go and um, there's no fluff about it it's just there's not it's not sexy like some of the stuff we have today uh, but it's um, so the information is um, uh, to its purest I think that's why I like it hello oh, seriously Hello. Come on. Oh, oh. you back? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Just a bit of a temporary. Uh, okay. Internet. Okay. Yeah, I might, I might have dropped again. Let's see. No, I'm, uh, can you hear, I can me hear you now. Yeah, I can hear yeah. you. Now. Yeah. yeah. Not a problem. We have some of the worst internet connections here in Australia, but that is our challenge. So one of the main things I was keen to um, to ask how you knew so much about it was um, in 16 and, and, and since you, as I said, you've shown a, a knowledge of things that others haven't. Um, talk to me about time under tension. I was very impressed with your understanding there. Uh, well, the time under tension is your, your tempo times your number of reps uh, I'm not sure uh, I think it's uh, for me I think it's important because it, it does give you uh, you want to respect it as much as possible because it does give you your the strength quality you're working um, if there's no tempo then and there's no there's no control over what you're doing then you're, you're you won't be sure of what you're getting as far as strength quality so uh, that's why for me, time and attention is important. Uh, there's a purpose behind it. And there's also a training response you'll get with certain amount of, like a, a, a certain amount of time and attention. So we all know in the books, it says one, one to 20 is relative strength and so on. Uh, it's there for a reason. I mean, and uh, I know you were the first one to write the number of the, the, the actual numbers for the tempos. Um, and then, uh, I mean, it was not a, a, a concept you invented, and, uh, and I know you don't, you don't, uh, and you, I've never seen, uh, heard you say that you invented it because Geronda talked about it, and time, the time of contraction has been talked about for many, many, many decades. But I, I think we have to give you the credit that you actually, you're the first one who actually put a number for each phase of the of the tempos. And uh, that made uh, things a lot clearer. And when I teach my uh, my courses, I always tell people, I said, you know, this is the, the time of attention is something that you need to know because when you write a program and you write down your goals, it, this will tell you if you're on target or not on target. Um, is that what you yeah. want to? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So having the numbers allow us. Allow me to quantify the, the time frames and put numbers, you know, put time frames mm. to to uh, strength qualities. The the irony is, it really it was just a, like a practitioner saying, "This is what I think," and um, I never said it was a science. Mm. But since then, it seems to have been thrown around as if it is a science. Uh, I'm still really waiting for the scientists to clarify it. But uh, mm. it's interesting how it's become part of the the vernacular, part of the language in even in scientific literature. Yeah, but I think it's because it made things a lot simpler. Like it, it, it makes like for now, like for example, when I when I teach the mastering program design, like it, it does, it gives so much clarity to people. It's they stop. Like I said to people, it's not uh, an exact science, but it gives you an idea where to start, and from there, then you can do uh, what you need. I always say to people in strength training, like anything else. There's a science of a strength coach, 
or strength training. There's the art of strength training. And the, the people that can marry the, the, the both the best will be the better coaches. Because uh, like you said, it's not an exact science because um, if I do like a, a, like a 6, 12, 25 training system with a 3010 tempo, I may get more hypertrophy and the guy beside me might get more strength endurance. But the point is that as a strength coach, when you write your programs, then I know that this type of time detention for me creates more hypertrophy. Therefore, if I need more strength endurance, then I have to go up. I have to adapt my tempo for me. And same thing for the guy beside me and the same thing for women and same thing so that you have a starting point, which never before I don't, I think the starting point might have been harder to get. And from that starting point that is clearer, now you can play around and become uh, very skillful at, at designing programs. Well, good thing to know that you've been around um, early enough to understand all that stuff. It's tough when you hear it being thrown around by people who probably heard it a bit more third hand than you you got to hear it. You probably got to hear it a bit more first hand. Yeah. Well, I heard it from uh, Charles told me about it years ago, and he heard it. He learned it from you. So uh, it was maybe second hand, but it was a close second hand. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. So we've got a few coaches on the on the line. Um, and I'm just going to put it out to them if you have any questions any time. Andre's been around sure. okay. more than most most coaches uh, and, and come out of the, the 1980s of Canada, which was a fantastic time for training knowledge. It was, we call it the closest thing to the Eastern Eastern Bloc in the Western world. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uh, simply because of the, the attraction. In the lead-up to an Olympics like the 88 Olympics, the government spent so much money that... People from around the world want to move there temporarily, at least. Uh, some stayed on, of course, but you had a lot of people move there in the 10 years prior in it because of the funding that was bringing them to your country. Well, yeah, we had a lot of uh, people from, like Ishvan Bali came in from um, Romania. Hungary, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we had a lot of uh, coach from, interestingly enough, some from the Eastern Bloc and some from uh, uh, that learned from the Eastern Bloc were coming in Canada for sure, yes. Absolutely. I'm not sure what time, what year um, Vompa turned up, but I know his family was relatively, relatively um, around that time. And I, I got to spend many, many years with his family. It was, it was quite ironic because um, I spent a lot of time with the Canadian ski team. And there you have as their sports science director, a person who would go on and become one of the world's leading experts on periodization. You don't have too many teams at national level where you have such um, quality uh, consultants, shall we say. Yeah, no, for sure. That's the only, that's guaranteed. Yeah. yeah, sure. So you probably didn't appreciate it. Um, we were jealous, and then Australia in the lead up to the 2000 Olympics, they spent the money and attracted the talent. And then England, um, they had uh, was it Manchester in uh, two uh, Commonwealth Games. They had uh, London in 2012, 2012. So they they attracted a lot of intellectual talent. Um, yeah. It just it just moves around depending upon who's spending the money. As soon as the Olympics are over, as you know, the, the funding dries up pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, because uh, I guess in 1989, we got cut off pretty quick. So we lost a lot of people. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I felt it. I, I felt at 89, the difference um, with, the, with the funding cutoff. So, yeah. uh, Michael, Rick, Ron, we've got some diversity of on the line here. Good chance to learn uh, from someone from the, the Canadian side. If you had a question, uh, just looking for a hand electronically with Ron, Rick, or... Yeah. Michael, so while we're looking for that, where are you based out of now, Andre? I'm based in uh, Airdrie, uh, Alberta. So it's a small town, uh, uh, maybe 10 minutes north of uh, Calgary. So it's uh, a small gym here. It's called the Canadian Centre for Strength and Conditioning. And um, the majority of my clients now are general population. I have some young athletes, but that's it. I don't have... Uh, too many pro athletes or amateur athletes anymore. But I'm in, yeah, uh, a small town called Airdrie. And it's a good good living there, I'm assuming. It's a lovely place to live. 
it's a beautiful place to live, but the business is is not booming. That's for sure because of the oil industry. It's going through a hard times. So my even my gym has been affected. But I don't have the same <clears throat> sorry same clients I use, or the same number of clients I used to have. Um, so it's a bit it is uh, challenging right now because the business is uh, is difficult. So uh, like even I've been looking around different option um to do maybe move in a different place but uh the thing is i really like the area for the kids for example the school is like 11 houses down the road uh, yeah. and, and then the surrounding is really and we have the mountains and everything so but business wise is, is a bit more challenging for sure than it was yeah, kids are always a factor i know that one so we got ron uh, ron was um You'll understand his UK accent. He's a Scottish boy lost in the Indonesians. Okay. Ron, go ahead with the question, Andre. Need to come off mute first, Ron. So Ron is, yep, that's it. Hi. Uh, hi, Andre. Yeah. How are you doing? Good and you? Yeah, you can understand. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I'm good. Uh, you understand my Scottish accent? I slow sure down did. because of the well when you move overseas you have to slow down yeah <laughs> um just a question i'm i'm doing a a level 2 with ian just now and he's very much um a guy who preaches low volume sort of low intensity sort of workouts um how do you uh, manage to transfer that across to the clients you're working with because sometimes you have to pull the reins on the clients because the always want to do more and more and more and get more intensity and get a, a sweat up and think they've got a workout. Yeah, so that's the perception of, uh, I mean, uh, for me, I go according to whatever clients I have, I, I go according. What I do, I, I sit down with them, I do a structural screening. Uh, it's all uh, visual cues of how the body moves. And from there, I decide what to do. First few phases of, course it's going to be more volume so higher rep range but i do believe that um well this is my philosophy the first thing i have to teach my client if they do not you know if they're not they have not been with me or they are new to strength training or resistance training i my first purpose is to teach them to move uh, because you cannot start loading a movement that they have no clue how to do and I know that Ian agrees with this. We've talked about this before, but I think it's very, very important that they understand how to uh, to move because lifting in a gym is a learned skill. You, you're not born with that. And uh, <clears throat> so obviously I, I always teach them to move and I start loading them. And once they have a good enough form, they understand the technique and they, they master the program to my... Uh, my uh, you know, uh, standard, if you want, then I will start to load them up, but load them up for them. So when we say high intensity or heavy load, like low reps, for some people, four to six reps is a high intensity work. And some other people doing 10 to 12 reps at a 4010 is doing eccentric work because they've never done it. So, but in general, I will go uh, high volume and then I will, I, I'm not scared to going heavy to the level of the skill that they have. I will go, usually it will be two for one, two, so two higher volume to one heavy. Uh, that's once they've mastered or once they're good at lifting. I don't know if I answer your question properly, but uh, the way you want it, but uh, that's what I do. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. that's good. Um, okay. And can I ask one more question? Uh, sure. Uh, do do you use the four four number system or the three number system when it comes to speed of movement? Uh, the well four four digit. Like uh, whatever four zero one zero three zero one zero two zero one zero. Four digit. Yeah. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's all. That's all. I, I, no, no, I think I just I was just curious. Yeah. Uh, just because thing. of yeah, it's, it's just I've done this for uh, I don't know twenty some years, like maybe even actually yeah, twenty six years, maybe twenty seven years. So I first started with yeah. three uh, because that's what uh, we've learned from Ian, and then we added one 
at the end. Um, yeah. So. Excellent. Appreciate that, Ron. Okay. So, that, that was a, just, a, just a question. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good, good understanding history. So, uh, I think anyone working closely with Polycon in the late 90s would have shifted over to um, the, the four digit because that was uh, just, I think, um, you know, there may have been rational reasons for it, there may have been other reasons for it, but that was just what history happened. Yeah, and then the, 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 the reasoning behind it was just the, the, the pause, if you want to add a pause at the end of the concentric movement. That's the, but that's the reasoning I remember. Uh, now there might have been some other stuff, but that's what I remember originally. Yeah. Uh, that's so the, the, the pause for me was duplicated at both ends, but um, yeah. obviously there's, there's theory to vary the pause differently at each end, but that theory is so far advanced on everyone the average person's understanding that I don't think many people understand the implications because the implications of a pause after eccentric and an implication of a pause after contract are different. Yes, totally. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it was definitely modelled. It was lovely in theory, but my yeah. intent with pause was replicated at both ends. Okay, okay, okay. See, I was never... See, I'm learning something again today. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely... Um, Absolutely believe in a pause by things. I just, I just kept it simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's simplicity is king. And I, I, and I was not trying to make a a, a word, a, a play of word here with your name, but it is, it is. Simplicity is king. Like you got to keep. I find now when I teach program, uh, teach my courses, people try to complicate things so much, and I'm like, man, it's just, just keep it simple. There's no. There's no, uh, it's not complicated, you know, resistance, proper movement, time and attention. That's it. There's no. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure someone will find a reason to add a fifth number sooner or later. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Appreciate it, Ron. So I'm just going to take uh, Rick off now. Rick, um, Rick is an Australian, and Rick has got a question for you, Andre. Sure. Unmute yourself, Rick. <laughs> So we get, see we get Rick off mute. No, that's it, Rick, off mute now. Can you hear me? Yep, yeah, I can hear Hello. you. Yep. Yeah, hi, Andre. Um, yeah, my name's Rick. Um, nice to meet you. Yeah, just uh, in your work um, at the Canadian Centre of Strength and Conditioning, there's a bit of a follow-on from the previous question, but um, how much importance do you place on the technical model of an exercise or drill before deciding to apply load or increase the load or intensity? And also... As a secondary question to that, does it matter if it takes weeks, months, or even longer on mastering that technical model of whatever it is? And is patience the key in your opinion? Um, I just, yeah, I'm just wanting to know for my own practice um, and for myself as well, um, what your opinion was on that and how you did things. Okay, so you want to know how, uh, how much attention I pay to lifting technique? How important it is and oh, any tech basically yeah well not just lifting but any kind of drill whether it's yeah lifting yeah uh, in the yeah, field so any, or could whatever be a prowler prowler push or jump or whatever that's what you mean right yeah so um yeah well, well for me for there's there's a basic they need to know um uh, it's really rare it's going to take uh, like months and months and months to learn a movement uh, for example, if you take one of the most difficult one to, uh, I found mastering is uh, the Peterson step up. I'm not talking about Olympic lifting here. Okay, Olympic lifting is a different beast. Uh, but if you click the master the Peterson step up, you know what that is. Yep. Okay. So what I do I have a version because I at the beginning when I when I met Carl Peterson, and he showed me this stuff. Uh, I tried like crazy to teach this to my hockey player. It would take like, I would lose like 20 some minutes uh, for the first month, uh, every session, be trying every lower body session, trying to teach them the stupid movement. And uh, what I did is uh, at the end, I just said, you know what? That's it. We're going to do supported pieces and stuff up. So I put a wedge underneath their foot, their feet. They have the angle and so on. So if I need to use that lift, I put a wedge under their feet to like I can get the angle that you're supposed to get with the foot um, and the same I so you kind of uh, regress the 
the lift to its most simplest way. And I try to do that with all the other lifts if they have a complication. So if they cannot, uh, for example, with the squat, a lot of people do, they love yep. giving bar, uh, front squat or barbell and back squat. But for me, if they, if they don't have the flexibility to do it properly, we don't do it. I'm not, I'm not wasting time on it. I will do split squats and lunges and deadlifts to whatever, or maybe I'll do a squat with the range of motion. They can have a good technique and that will increase the range slowly uh, throughout the year. Uh, but there's, uh, I think it's important that they, aren't, they master the basics of uh, split squats. Some people are in the sorry, basics of uh, all movements. Um, I think the squat's not the end-all, be-all of everything, especially with the general population. Uh, for example, I have a guy, Kevin, he is as flexible as a crowbar. And it took him maybe, to be very honest, 10 months to do a proper split squat. But that's an exception. Okay. But I'm there all the time. He does them. But sometimes I'll have his front. Uh, I'll have stuff to help him do it, uh, so he doesn't get hurt. Um, so front foot elevated, and I would uh, we would do, for example, for him I would warm him up a bit more uh, with other exercise, and then we do the split squats at the end instead of doing the split squats at the beginning. Um, so yes, yeah, to answer your question, there is a minimum requirement of proper technique for me that I look into my clients. In the vast majority of time, though, within one phase, within the first phase, um, I would say that the majority of my clients will achieve proper technique um, for that uh, yeah. most of the exercise we are, we're doing. Yep. Great. Does that answer your question? Or? Yep, certainly does, okay. yeah. Um, okay. I've got another quick one, if I'm allowed. Um, yeah, what would be your general advice to current day or well, athletes and normal everyday weekend warriors like most are um, to stay healthy in the long term whilst also trying to push themselves to pursue, you know, their their limit or success? Oh, boy. I wish you could ask me that question 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I, <laughs> I thought I knew almost everything. Now I'm... <laughs> I know <laughs> my answer is going to be depends. Uh, the the basic one is obviously nutrition. So um, I think yeah. uh, in the past, uh, when I was younger, anyway, nutrition was good. You had everything in your food. Now I think your your omega your essential fatty acid or your omega three, if you want, your D three, and your um, multivitamins are no more supplements. I think they are part of your nutrition. Um, and then uh, as far as that's going to be the short answer for the nutrition, obviously eat good is, is, uh, paramount. Uh, yep. And then for exercises, I always try for, uh, not perfect technique, but good technique or great technique and full range of motion. I think, uh, keeping full range I've, in, in my experience, my clients that even Kevin, the guy who's as flexible as a crowbar, now that we he can achieve full range of motion. He keeps his flexibility, uh, yep. even though uh, I've seen, you know, anybody who says, oh, if you lift too heavy, you lose flexibility. I don't agree with that. Uh, if you lift heavy, proper technique, proper range of motion, you won't lose nothing. Actually, if Ian can say something about that one, because uh, I don't mind, uh, uh, I would like actually having his opinion on that. Lifting heavy will make you stiff, but if you lift full range of motion, I don't think it's, there's any loss of range of motion. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll jump in on that. So you'll always retain the range of motion that you're using, but yeah. the effort the effort to achieve that range of motion does increase as the as the uh, micro trauma basically. And I, I don't call it scar tissue, but as the micro trauma does create tension uh, longitudinally. The a great example of that would be a powerlifter who doesn't yeah. um, doesn't do stretching. And they actually kind of like that. That over the years it gets harder for them to get depth. With the weight forces them into that, and they see that as an advantage. Um, I think that's maybe very narrow to their benefits. I wouldn't wish that upon any other athlete to, to progressively lose range 
uh, and need to be forced into range by load to get it. So um, I, I believe that any um, repetitious nature or any uh, anything that causes remodeling of the tissue basically um, potentially can make range uh, more demanding to achieve, even though you may still have the same range. So that's a short answer to probably a good question. Yeah, but the power lifter, though, they, they, they lift they lift short range. And they also with the power lifter, I, for me anyway, I strongly believe they need to be stiff, otherwise they'll fucking break their, their back. Uh, I think they need that stiffness uh, to, and that's, uh, I'm saying this after talking with uh, Stuart McGill, I, I didn't invent that. I didn't think about that myself, but uh, he was saying like, and it makes sense though, that they they need that stiffness to be able to hold on to those loads, the crazy loads that they're lifting. Well, so that's, that's all a relative discussion. You know, what, yeah. what, what, until someone explores greater softness in their tissue and lifts heavy, we'll never know. Because at the okay. moment, we're, they're all following the same model of training, so to speak, I mean, generally yeah. speaking, and they're not respecting the role of tissue tension and they're not responding responding to the role of flexibility. Um, so I don't think that, that that's an area that hasn't been explored, and I think it's probably a bit uh, presumptuous to conclude that just because that's what they're all doing. But that's, that they like that okay. feeling, but it's not healthy. Okay, sure. Whether it's optimal, uh, we don't know, yeah, because that's how human performance is always expanded, because people start doing stuff that everyone thought was not appropriate to do, and, and then they find a way to do it better. So I like okay. to keep options. Okay. All right. So we got I've I've also wanted to. I got a bit of background noise when you said who taught you the the Peterson squat, Andre. Me is uh, Carl Peterson. But that okay. Let me make something clear here. The supported Peterson step up in the 40s used to be called the decline step up. Just so we know, um, the Peterson step up. I don't think he invented it at the time. I never heard about it. But since then, I've been reading more and more, and I know that the supported, or this also called the follicle step up, or whatever, um, they, it used to be called the decline step up. So, just so you know. I'm always intrigued with history. Obviously, I know, um, know yeah. Carl, so oh, you obviously do as well. Excellent. So, let's go to Michael. Michael is an American. He's a head swim coach at uh, D1 School in San Diego in the swimming program. Okay. So, Michael, you're off mute. Hey, a very interesting discussion. I actually just bought the Hartman book. I went online uh, to purchase that book because I, I, that always intrigues me when people reflect on, especially old literature, how good it is. And uh, quick question, actually, on that book. I was looking through the reviews, and there was some quote about some people saying the newer editions has chapters that they think aren't are copied or or the hypertrophy side of things isn't like the old edition have you had any i'm just curious have you had any thoughts on that or experiences or or oh, i think oh. it's highly possible that's why i bought the old version right i don't know which version i bought i just went on so which version are you talking about when you say old version like before uh, mine was I think it was written 1980 79 i think okay. I to, uh, to be honest with you it's downstairs i don't have it here Sure. Um, uh, but uh, I don't know how to contact you to. Uh, well, that's fine. I mean, yeah. I, I, was just I can I can find out. I mean, it, it, I, mean I just got to use version for so low dollars. And so my, my second part of my question and, um, you know, it's always a, always an interesting discussion. And, and I, you know, I work with collegiate age women and I'm always trying to find ways to get better as every coach is. And, uh, you know, sitting through, you know, having some discussions with Ian and listening through that, I've, I've learned a lot about dysfunction versus function. But I'm always interested in people's thoughts about how to get women stronger in upper body movements, pulling movements. And I know there are probably some solid responses, but I'm always curious what people have to say. Uh, My uh, take on that is, again, from experience, I'm actually I'm coaching. Uh, some of the uh, club swimmers from Airdrie right now, uh, okay. they're right. all coming with uh, upper body injuries, like bursitis, sure. not right. one, but multiple bursitis, tendonitis, right. torn, and uh, all of them, yeah. without exception, are all too weak. Uh -huh. uh, and that's why they're having so much problems. I, it, well, okay, so let me rephrase that. That's one of the problems. 
one of the sure. reasons why they're having so much problems. Uh, the thing with women that I found over the years is that as much as they will kick our ass on high volume stuff, like uh, right. I do energy system using prowler and resistance, they will uh, I've made maybe in my 31 years of training, I've made three women vomit and I stopped counting how many men because they vomit easy. However, <laughs> yeah. however, right on the, on the high intensity, the vast majority, 98% of them cannot handle a high volume of a high intensity. Meaning, mm. uh, if you if you do 10 sets of two to four reps, uh, I will for women. I bring it down to eight, sometimes seven, because they, they, they. Um, again, it's that's. Uh, I've, I don't know if there's any tangible. I've uh, heard there's research on it, but what right. I've discovered is that they, I kill you, kill the nervous system too quick, and they get uh, overtrained or underrested. However, you want to talk about that, but uh, quicker than for men, mm. and. Uh, that's what I so for women to get stronger, I always go less set than I would do for the boys uh, on the same of the same age. For example, I have uh, Maddie; uh, she is right now overtrained because the that, again, that's me guessing. Okay, it's it's not, mm -hmm. uh, but I believe that the coach that is training the the boys and the girls, they do the exact same amount of set of high intensity in the pool right as the boys and i and now i see her in the gym i i have to decrease my or change my program because she's burning out sure um, so i send him an email i'm waiting for his response right now <laughs> Good luck. again I, i'm not i'm not a, i'm not a, no he will he will answer he will reply I'm, he's pretty good at that oh good um, but uh yeah he's pretty good but uh, the, the thing is that um that's again that's my own finding like i've had the yeah. uh, skeleton athlete uh, you know the cluster training? Uh, you do five, five yeah. sets of five intermittent. Yeah, okay, for her, if I did that, she done. So for her, I had to modify it to four sets of four intermittent uh, rep because mm -hmm. otherwise it was too much for her. And she, But again, at the same time, for her, her nervous system, not like she's not a... Uh, or a, you know, a rabbit. She's more like a fast turtle. Right. So uh, very hard worker. So I would bring her stronger. She was able to have good starts. Mm -hmm. uh, very good start actually. But uh, had to work really, really, really hard for it. Right. And that's how uh, I got better results with her. With her. Yeah. And, and uh, most of our athletes are very beginner. So I mean, as far as in the weight room, very beginning people. So it's always. What you reflected on before about movement and, and yeah. very. Have you found that that the the women, you know, you always have. I have a discussion with our people here because I don't run our strength program. I just have a lot of input because I know I actually have some knowledge now. And so that the rep, but my most recent discussion with them is that women can lift a higher higher number of reps per percentage of their max versus men, and that was flabbergasting yeah. from i mean you have you found that is it isn't that correct that, that uh, for, for me i will tend to tend to agree with that in general yes and again right. it, it comes out to they are more efficient but they sure. the 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 uh, the output or the you know, the 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 one rm the men will have a higher percentage just because they're right. we're more efficient at that right but that's why but men in general always lift heavier than women so right but i mean for like a, for a certain percentage I mean, whatever percentage 80 yeah. percent women can usually lift a higher rep number yeah. for that percent than than the male is that is that am i is that what you're saying yes yes in oh, general they will in general yeah. Yeah. all right well it's been very enjoyable thank you no problem so as we as we wrap, I want to commend the coaches who have made the effort to join us. This is like, uh, as Andre says, you learn more about in your informal chats with people yeah. than you do uh, in many ways in, in the formal class. You can get a book anytime, you get a video anytime, uh, but to have that opportunity to talk like this one-on-one, -on -one, ask questions that uh, that are, are on your mind at the time uh, and that there is your, to your credit and to have someone of Andre's 
uh, experience in the industry. As I said, there's, uh, relatively speaking, not many who have been around since the 80s. And so today you had an opportunity to chat with one and, uh, and on top of that, a two-time Olympian oh. and someone came out of the Canadian program. So a great honor for our coaches. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. This is, uh, anytime you want to do this again, I love doing this stuff. Like I really enjoy doing this. I think uh, for us, Ian, we have, uh, it's our, I mean, you're doing it 10 times more than me, but uh, I think it's our duty to inform and educate our, the younger coaches, because like you're saying, they, uh, they get fed uh, third and fifth and tenth hand information that's been it's like the telephone game you know <laughs> starts uh, the color is blue and at the end it's like uh, polka dots so um, that's what we have to be uh, and I love doing this so uh, thank you very much for inviting me tonight it was uh, really really an honor to uh, when I got your your text I was really I told my wife right away I said fuck he asked me to do this podcast. <laughs> so, thank you for that. Hello, are we done or? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Oh. That's all I gotta do. Is he there or what? Maybe. Okay. This is, uh, who's this on the phone right now? Have you lost him? I think. Oh. Breaking up, buddy. You're breaking up. Yeah, sorry. Oh. Just internet connection challenges. Can, I'm back now. Can you hear me? Yeah, well, I can hear you now. Yeah, sorry. Just some internet. Nothing unusual. So we will wrap it up for the internet. Cut off completely. We will do this again. Uh, great to catch up with you at Swiss, and I appreciate you sharing the time to tell the coaches uh, a little bit about your history and, and, and fill in the gaps in their own understanding of the history of Western world modern day strength training, at least. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll be right back.